From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Building a Better Surgeon. The tools that we're talking about today are just the beginning of what hopefully will be a exciting change in medicine, not just for ophthalmology, but for medicine in general. First this. In order to provide medical education free of commercial bias, as seen from here requires a financial interest disclosure before any podcast program. Dr. Lee declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. No single department of ophthalmology has the best lecturers in every field. Open Ophthalmology is a meta-school in which lecturers from different departments have access to ophthalmology residents everywhere. I've seeded this marketplace of ideas with my own course on clinical optics. Who's your department's best lecturer? Let me know and come visit us at openophthalmology.com. Open Ophthalmology. Let a hundred flowers bloom. What's the hardest thing you do? I don't even have to think about it. The hardest thing I do is to teach intraocular surgery. The substantial pride I feel at the end of an academic year is severely tempered by the knowledge that a cohort of neophytes follows close behind. This feeling must be shared because a move is clearly afoot to formalize the way residents are introduced into surgery. A good example of this is outlined in the recent paper in ophthalmology by Andrew Lee, my guest today. Andy, welcome to A Scene From Here. Those of us involved in academic ophthalmology in the U.S. have personal knowledge of the RRC. For the benefit of our overseas listeners, please explain how residency programs are accredited in the U.S. So in the United States, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, also known as the ACGME, accredits programs to uh, teach residents. Uh, in the United States. So ACGMA accredits institutions, and this is in distinction to board certification, which is for individuals, which is done in the United States by the American Board of Ophthalmology. So certification is for individuals, accreditation is for institutions. What are the six competencies, and why has the American Board of Ophthalmology proposed a seventh? So the six competencies are patient care, medical knowledge, professionalism, communication and interpersonal skills, practice-based learning, and systems-based learning. Surgery is the seventh, quote-unquote, competency, and right now it's housed under patient care. Um, The American Board of Ophthalmology and the RRC for Ophthalmology believe that surgery is an important part of being an ophthalmologist. And so even though it's housed under patient care, it's being treated as a separate uh, quote-unquote, seventh competency. What is the RRC's requirement for wet lab experience? So the ACGME, and um, through its uh, verification arm, the RRC, the Residency Review Committee, requires that programs have a wet lab experience for residents. Now, with the development of simulation technology, the wet lab may actually in the future become a dry lab where there's actually no wet uh, component to it. But right now, the wet lab would consist of working on cadaveric or pig or other animal eyes uh, using an, a microscope or uh, instruments that are similar to or have been discarded from the operating room. So everybody has to have a wet lab of some type, but the components of the wet lab have not been completely described by the ACGME yet. 
Like a lot of challenges, many programs have chosen to outsource the problem of surgical volume. Yes, um, you know, the number of cases that a resident does at their home institution is typically what we count towards the minimum numbers required for surgical competency and also from an accreditation standpoint for the program. Many programs send their residents to uh, increase their surgical numbers and experience at other places in the United States, which is fine. And some programs send their residents abroad. Most of the time, those numbers are not going to be counted towards the accreditation numbers because they can't be adequately verified, the supervision is different, uh, and the the follow-up in terms of post-operative care is probably not of long enough duration to provide us with meaningful surgical numbers. Andy, what about simulators and virtual surgery? So simulation technology is definitely an expanding and evolving tool for us to be able to assess resident competence in surgery. The advantage of simulation is that it allows us to simulate real-world situations without putting a live patient at risk. So the things that it's really good for are simulating cognitive scenarios where the resident would have to deal with a potential complication or surgical uh, mishap without actually having to wait for that to occur in a real-life patient. So from a simulation standpoint, we'd like to simulate things with low fidelity for cognitive scenario reconstruction, but for technical skills, we want to have a high-fidelity instrument mock that actually resembles a real-world situation. So for a high-fidelity simulation, we would like to have tactile and visual replication of the real-world environment. Eventually, it will be a virtual surgery where the the surgery would take place in real time and in three-dimensional space, and the instruments that are being held would actually feel like and respond like real instruments in the real world. Right now, what we have is two-dimensional and some three-dimensional representations of the real eye, but in a very, very um, stylistic fashion, and low-fidelity mocks for replicating cognitive scenarios. I think that as simulation technology improves, we'll be able to shift more and more of the practice of the basics of surgical technique and instrument recognition and use to the simulation, and this will eventually take the place of the wet lab and will be a dry lab, so to speak, of technical skills and uh, knowledge about complications that can be replicated in a virtual environment. What is the OWL curriculum? So at the University of Iowa, we have an ophthalmology wet lab, which we abbreviate with the term OWL, the ophthalmology wet lab. So the Iowa version of the ophthalmology ophthalmology wet lab, the OWL, is our attempt to provide standardization for the wet lab curriculum, which is a requirement from the RRC, but also provides uh, pre- and post-testing of knowledge base, allows for deliberate practice in the wet lab, and 
increases the residents' awareness of what is expected of them in terms of instrument knowledge and prerequisites before going into the operating room. And then we ultimately would like to combine that with the simulation technology so a certain number of cases could be performed both in the wet lab and in the dry lab under simulation before actually trying it out on a real person. In the Iowa version of the ophthalmology wet lab curriculum, we have pre- and post-testing. We have structured checklists that verify performance and achievement of milestones that can be benchmarked against one another, and residents can compare their progress over time. And then we have simulations that residents can go through that help them to train in cognitive scenarios without actually having to risk uh, real-life patient's eye. What is the OWL core strategy? The Iowa strategy is no different than what would be used at other institutions. It simply serves as a model or a template, if you will, for them to get started. But there's nothing unique about Iowa that would preclude the use of the Iowa OWL at any institution in the United States. What do you mean by formative and summative feedback? So there are two types of feedback. One type is what we refer to as summative feedback. Summative feedback is your final grade. It's the type of feedback that we're used to. When we take a test, you get a grade, and that's the summative feedback. Formative feedback allows the learner to actually change behavior over time. And so formative feedback is superior to summative feedback in a lot of ways because it allows the learner to improve. Uh, it provides them the opportunity and gives them explicit written directions on what they did wrong and what areas they could improve in and how to move to the next level. Formative feedback can be summed so that you can provide the resident with a summative grade at the end. And so all summative encounters should probably be composed of a series of formative feedback encounters. What is the Erickson model? So the Erickson deliberate practice model is quite simply that expertise within any domain of competence needs to be practiced. And practice in the sense of having a learning plan, knowing which steps you're going to replicate, and then repeating them over time to develop expertise uh, within a certain uh, skill set before moving on to the next step. So in the Erickson model, as applied to other domains of expertise like music or professional sports, for instance, even professional athletes and professional musicians engage in deliberate practice where they hone their skills but also improve their skills over time. So the, the concept of deliberate practice is applied to surgery is having the composite pieces of a surgical case broken down into its component parts and then practicing that part uh, until you're ready to move to the next step. So the best example would be capsulorexis at the University of Iowa. Residents practice on the rexus component and complete the rexus in an otherwise perfect uh, attending case, and they keep practicing the rexus component on live patients until they're ready to move to the next level, and then they can build on their uh, expertise acquisition over time. So the deliberate practice model is is simply deconstructing the task, repeating the portions of the task until there's a certain competency reached, and then moving on to the next task. How do you assess outcomes? How do you know that this method works? So we 
we have to wait and see on whether it actually will make a better resident. In the short term, we have pre- and post-test scores that show that residents' knowledge base improves uh, before and after the educational intervention. We also have learner satisfaction data that suggests that resident confidence in certain portions of procedures and their satisfaction with the learning process is improved by having explicit written direction, formative feedback, and access to deliberate practice. And then we have the faculty global evaluation of performance, which is the, the faculty members feel that the residents are performing at a superior level based on the educational intervention. I think that in the future, external measures will be required that will incorporate patient satisfaction as well as hard outcomes data like visual acuity, vitreous loss rate, ACIOL insertion, reoperations, these types of external markers in addition to satisfaction markers and quality markers in the future will be the external outcome measures that will prove that the educational interventions that we're doing actually improve performance over time. If other programs want to adopt this or a similar model, what pearls would you give them? So all of the work that we have done is obviously non-proprietary. It's non-commercial. It's free. And the, the main things are starting small and showing success with a small bite first. And then as there's a certain comfort level and some buy-in is achieved locally, then moving on to a larger implementation uh, process. You can't do everything all at once. So for smaller programs, I would recommend starting with just one tool, assessing one part of one domain of one competency, testing it out on their learners, engaging the faculty, and getting people excited about the opportunity for educational innovation. And then once a core of enthusiastic and excited, like-minded individuals is participating, then the program can expand to use more tools and take bigger bites over time. Andy, is there anything else you'd like to add? I think that we're at an exciting time in medical education. The Flexner Report was really the last time that we had the opportunity to make a reform in medical education, and that's the Flexner Report is what led to our current model, which is accreditation, certification, and credentialing based on the apprenticeship model. I think a similar type of uh, evolution slash revolution is occurring with the competencies. And so we are moving from the apprenticeship model to a competency-based model, which will incorporate outcomes assessments. And the tools that we're talking about today are just the beginning of what hopefully will be a exciting change in medicine, not just for ophthalmology, but for medicine in general. Andrew Lee, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Andrew Lee is a neuro-ophthalmologist and professor of ophthalmology, neurology, and neurosurgery, and the Ophthalmology Fellowship Director at the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Science at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa. His paper, The Iowa Ophthalmology Wet Laboratory Curriculum for Teaching and Assessing Cataract Surgical Competency, appears in the July 2007 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Lee or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. 
These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States style area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.